Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to the show this Friday and the major economic story of the day. An incredibly strong U.S. jobs report and the most potent evidence yet that the recovery in the United States is gathering pace. A net 916,000 jobs recaptured by the U.S. economy in March. It's the strongest monthly gain since last August. The biggest contributor, the leisure and hospitality sectors, where some 280,000 jobs were created as airlines, bars and restaurants reopen and vaccination numbers rise. There were also revisions to the prior two months, too. It's still vital, though, to distinguish between reopening and recovery. The recovery still has a way to go, with 11 million people still jobless since the pandemic began. But it is, let's underscore it, a good data Friday. It's also Good Friday ahead of the Easter weekend, too. And the U.S. and European stock markets are closed today as a result. But Wall Street did wrap up the week with nice gains. The S&P closing above the 4,000 mark for the first time ever. Gains of more than 1%. A solid second quarter start for tech too. Amazon, Microsoft and Alphabet all up 2% or more. Alphabet, in fact, closing at record highs. But of course, given that those markets are closed today, Asia the focus in today's session as a result. And the Nikkei outperformed. Now that sector and that market up almost 9% year to date. Stronger gains than the United States and the stock market majors there as rising global demand lifts exports. That's also helping the German DAX to up some 10% this year so far, despite, as we've talked about many times, the slow vaccine rollout and restrictive measures to help vanquish the virus. And that, of course, is the key to recovery wherever we look in the world. Let's get to the drivers. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, let's get to the numbers. A bumper jobs report, blistering hot, I've seen it described as too. Just walk us through the details and what we saw. Yeah, Julia, this number blew past the sort of official expectations. The consensus was around 675,000 jobs to be added. So this was way past that. I will say that there were some sort of unofficial expectations circling around of around a million. So this comes in line with that. But if you look at the picture for the last uh, two, three months, rather, with these revisions, it really does show that so far this year, we have been seeing momentum building when it comes to jobs gains. January was raised up to 233,000, February to 468,000. So we see as these vaccine uh, programs begin to accelerate in the U.S., that jobs gains are following. Now, I will say that the U.S. economy is still in a hole, down 8.4 million jobs since the start of the pandemic. So of the 22,000 lost in March and April last year, there's still some way to go. We still have, you know, 8.4 million people who had jobs back then who don't have them now. So this is showing momentum, but still a long way to go. And homing in, Julia, on some of those sectors, uh, you mentioned this leisure and hospitality, the biggest winner, 280,000 
jobs added of that. Really interestingly, uh, almost two thirds came from food service and, and, and restaurants. That really shows that sort of the weather was starting to warm up, restrictions were getting loosened, vaccines were rolling out, and these jobs were coming back. That sector, though, still down about three million jobs since the start of the pandemic. Also, construction and manufacturing uh, were bright spots, rebounding from some weather-related hiccups, and even despite the supply shortages we've been talking about. One more thing to mention, Julia, wage growth was something that a lot of people were watching because of worries about inflation on Wall Street. Mm. Wages actually ticked down very slightly. Yeah, that's a, a worrying sign and something we'll continue to watch in particular. We can't take it away from this report. It's a fantastic report. It's great to add back a million or near a million, if you include revisions, jobs that we've lost. But to your point, we're still down 8.4 million jobs since the pandemic began. I've seen some estimates. I think Pantheon Economics said we could see 1 million this month and we've seen close to that. We could see 2 million for the next two months. So April and May. Claire, how quickly are those forecasters saying that we could add those remaining jobs back? You know, I think a lot of people are seeing a lot of momentum out there, Julia. Mm. Like that isn't far from the sort of various consensus on this that that I've seen that this could really sort of exponentially accelerate, particularly as the weather gets warmer. Uh, and, and, and again, it really depends on this vaccine rollout and how fast uh, the vaccination program can get ahead of, of the spread of the virus. The virus is, is still spreading, is still very worrying in certain states, but vaccines are being rolled out really fast. But crucial to point out that this has not been an equal crisis when it comes to unemployment. Blacks have been disproportionately affected. Black unemployment was still at 9.6% uh, in, in, in March. So that's much higher uh, than the average overall. Women have been forced out of the workforce. So I think we're going to be looking, you know, not only for the overall recovery, but how it impacts different parts uh, of the economy. And, and the reshaping that we talked about, you know, big box retail has been a winner. Traditional retail has been a loser. Delivery has, 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 has gained a huge amount of jobs. So there's been a sort of retooling of the economy, and that's going to play out here as well. Yeah, multi-speed recovery, which is the unfortunate thing that we've seen throughout the last year. Stimulus checks and stimulus overall also going to come into play over the next couple of months too. So fingers crossed it continues to see this kind of acceleration and momentum. Claire, great to have you with us. Thanks for that analysis. All right, let's move to our next driver now. Millions of Europeans face Easter weekend under strict COVID-19 curbs for the second year in a row. Dozens of European nations have imposed full or partial lockdowns to discourage large gatherings during the holiday. Even the Vatican is scaling back events. Delia Gallagher joins us now from Rome. Delia, various restrictions being enforced in Italy too. Just walk us through what you're seeing there. Well, Julia, what we're seeing is not a lot of people. This is start of a national lockdown starting tomorrow for three days over Easter. It is affecting all of Italy. Keep in mind, of course, that many regions in Italy already for the last two weeks have been under strict lockdown. But for the next three days, it is going to be total lockdown for the country. Of course, this is going to affect the Vatican as well. In just a few hours, we'll see Pope Francis in St. Peter's Square. But what you won't see are the faithful, much like last year. Uh, this weekend's uh, celebrations are going to be held without people in the square and in the church and without the thousands of tourists, frankly, that Italy and the Vatican are used to seeing. This is the start of the tourist season normally for this country. And that is something that's going to have some serious economic effects 
for this country down the line. Of course, vaccinations are the thing that the government is focusing on now, really trying to amp up their vaccine program. They have an ambitious program to try and vaccinate 500,000 Italians per day, get them all vaccinated, all adults, by the end of the summer, Julia. And the government just this week has said that all healthcare workers must be vaccinated if they are working directly with patients. So any no-vax healthcare workers, if they don't want to be vaccinated, they're going to risk being suspended without pay. Julia? Wow. I mean, Delia, I remember, vividly remember, a year ago, you and I talking about this and the number of healthcare workers there as we were just learning how to handle this virus that, that lost their lives and became co- sick with COVID themselves. What's the response been to that mandate for, for healthcare workers to get vaccinated or be suspended without pay? And, and how are people there handling just the continuation of, of lockdown measures? Well, particularly on the healthcare workers, there have been a small group of Novax healthcare workers that didn't want to get vaccinated. Most of them are quite happy to be vaccinated that we have spoken to. But the, the Novaxers say we can be transferred if we're working with somebody uh, directly. Of course, not happy about the potential for being suspended without pay. I must say, Julia, there is a general sense of fatigue amongst Italians. I was just speaking to a restaurant owner here who obviously is very worried because this is the second year now that he's going into uh, that his restaurant can only do takeaway. He's got 100 employees and he's working at 30 percent of his normal revenue. Uh, That is the kind of thing that you hear over and over again, certainly from business owners. This is a country which lives off of tourism. Uh, So certainly we'll be speaking down the line about the severe economic effects of these uh, shutdowns. Of course, at the moment, the real concern is to get those uh, daily case numbers under a a certain level so that the uh, country can open up again. So they're focused on the health issues. They're focused on the vaccination program. And hopefully we'll be able to have a plan for economic recovery in the near future. Julia? Yeah, for now, virus versus vaccines. Delia Gallagher, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Taiwan, a train carrying nearly 500 passengers derailed inside a tunnel, killing dozens of people. Officials saying everyone who has been trapped in the wreckage, though, has now been freed. Will Ripley is live in Hong Kong with more. Will, great news that those that have been able to be rescued now have been. What more are officials telling us at this stage? Just a few minutes ago, Julia, they actually uh, revised the death toll down by one. So that's also good news. One of the bodies that hasn't been identified yet uh, was uh, mistakenly (coughs) counted twice. But you still have a few of the bodies that do need to be identified, which means that there are still some families right now who don't know for sure uh, what happened to their loved ones. This um, it's hard to describe how tragic of a day this is for Taiwan. 50 people dead in this train crash. That's five times how many have died in Taiwan during the entire COVID-19 pandemic. And in a single moment, you had this catastrophe as this eight-car train, which was driving through this beautiful area in in, uh, Hualien County, uh, heading into a tunnel. People are looking out their windows, seeing these dramatic mountains and cliffs. And then they describe just terror as the train started to go off the tracks, flip over, train cars ripped apart. It was so crowded in this train, nearly 500 people, some were standing. It was, it was very, very packed. So imagine if you're there, everybody with belongings, all of that being thrown around. I mean, the witnesses who were coming out, those who were able to walk out on their own, just described just utter, 
utter terror. And, and there were people, dozens of people, who were actually trapped in some of the uh, crumpled cars for a number of hours. They didn't get freed until uh, late in the afternoon local time. Um, the, probably the saddest thing about this is that this has happened on a very important public holiday for the people of Taiwan and their families. It's called Tomb Sweeping Day. People get together as a family and they go out to the cemeteries and they pay their respects and clean off uh, the gravestones of their loved ones. So some of the people on this train undoubtedly were on their way to do that. They had the day off. They were there with their kids and their parents going to visit their loved ones. And now you have a situation where there are dozens more people added to the names of, of, of those missing relatives on this holiday, Julia, of all days. And our hearts are with those families that are currently in mourning or those that have been injured too. It's clearly early days, Will. What do we know about what might have caused this? Do we know anything? There are reports in government-run uh, Central News Agency and some video to back up as well that, that there may have been a, some type of, a, of construction equipment that slid down a hill and hit the moving train. This is one of the faster trains that uh, the Taiwan rail system operates. It could have been going at speeds up to 80 miles an hour. So if you had a large construction vehicle hit the side of the car, investigators say that could very well be what caused this. And there are social media videos where people are talking about seeing the truck and seeing the truck hit, hit a car. We know the driver of the train is one of the people who was killed here, uh, along with people in the cars towards the front as it was entering into that tunnel, Julia. This uh, could be the deadliest train disaster that Taiwan has seen in 70 years. Uh, according to their state media, uh, in, in terms of the death toll, you just have to go back decades before you find anything close to this. There was uh, a very bad crash back in 2018 as well. So the fact that you've now had two of these in such close proximity in terms of years is raising questions about rail safety in Taiwan and the government is looking into it. Yeah, and we'll wait for answers to those questions, Will, and again, our hearts are with all those involved in this tragedy. Will Ripley, great to have you with us. Thank you. To breaking news now, foreign ministers from the G7 group of nations have strongly condemned mass civilian killings in Ethiopia's Tigray region. CNN, in collaboration with Amnesty International, has investigated a gruesome video circulating on social media that shows the extrajudicial execution of at least 11 unarmed individuals by men wearing Ethiopian army uniforms. Nema Elbagir joins us now. Nema, great to have you with us. Uh, the conflict in Tigray is waged for many months now, and much of the reporting, including our own, has found evidence of Eritrean soldiers' complicity in war crimes. But this is the first time we've seen Ethiopian soldiers implicated. Just explain why this is so important. Well, Julia, the, the reporting we did is, is too graphic to show you on television at this hour. But just to walk you through it, the video opens with a scene of young men surrounded by Ethiopian soldiers. And that tallies with what we heard from local villagers and family members who say that 30, at least 39 of their loved ones were rounded up by uh, Ethiopian army soldiers in this region. Then and this is really important. Then the person that's filming, you begin to realize, is filming very openly. There's even a point at which uh, this soldier, now turned whistleblower, we, we've been able to verify that this was the person who filmed this, is beckoned forward. So there is no attempt to hide what's happening here. Then they, they move these 
young men to a separate location and Amnesty and CNN was able to geolocate this location as being about 1.7 kilometers away. And, and I want you to take a listen at what, what is said at that location. The wording here is important. Execution. This is premeditated. They've rounded up these men to kill them. They are very clear that this is an execution and, uh, and therefore it is an extrajudicial execution. The, the sense of that impunity by actors in Ethiopian army uniforms, uh, official actors, Ethiopian soldiers, executing in broad daylight young men that had been dragged from their homes. That is what is so important about this video. Previously, the implication had been from the Ethiopian prime minister's office and others that Eritrean soldiers had come in to help fight off the ousted regional rulers of the Tigray region, the TPLF, and that somehow that was what had resulted in these war crimes. But here we see Ethiopian state actors openly stating that intent to execute. And, and the part that we cannot show you, although the full report is on CNN.com, is when they begin to dispose of the bodies over the ridge. And what we see there is just a casual disregard for any apparent consequence. Bodies of, of young men, we don't even know if they are alive or dead at that point, that had been shot at point-blank range, flung over a ridge. And the, the families that we spoke to, the families in this region whose young men are still missing and, and still haven't been able to verify if they are among the dead, many of them haven't, a few have. Um, for them, that is the most painful part of this, is that Ethiopian army soldiers rounded up their loved ones at gunpoint, and now they are unable to even bury these, these young men uh, in a way that shows the respect and the care that they would like. So this is incredibly important, and we're waiting to hear, Julia, what further reaction we get beyond the G7 statement. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, strong condemnation, but Nema, what now? That is the key question, and that's what we keep being asked by so many of these survivors and, and the families of the victims. Um, one person we spoke to earlier today said to us, it's been five months in which we have heard condemnation after condemnation mm. from the State Department and from the G7 now, and, and yet there doesn't seem to have been actual action or consequences taken against the Ethiopian government. The, the G7 has now asked for a verified withdrawal of the Eritrean forces. But as we show in this reporting, in collaboration with Amnesty, it is not just about the Eritreans. And the, the, the solution will have to be the world deciding that the Ethiopian government needs to do more and more needs to be done on behalf of these victims, Julia. Yeah, the international community needs to step up Nema, great reporting. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Nema Albagir. And there is much more, as Nema mentioned, on this important story on our website, cnn.com. And you can see Nema's full report in five hours' time. That's 2 p.m. in New York, 7 p.m. in London. Stay with First Move. There's more to come.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. and European markets are closed for Good Friday observances, but investors are surely glued to their screens. Nonetheless, after the release of today's stronger-than-expected U.S. jobs report, 916,000 jobs were added net to the U.S. economy last month, driven by big gains in leisure and hospitality hirings. Bars and restaurants, in fact, adding more than 150,000 new jobs. There are further signs that strength is coming back to the jobs market too. United Airlines saying it will start hiring hundreds of pilots as travel demand bounces back. The first major U.S. carrier to announce a substantial rehiring of people that once worked, of course, in the airline industry. All this coming one day after blockbuster readings on manufacturing to U.S. factory activity soaring to 37-year highs in March. Strong factory growth in Asia and Europe last month, too. Reopening optimism spilling into the energy markets as well. OPEC Plus announcing that it will gradually increase output by some 2 million barrels of oil per day and hope that demand will increase. A surprise announcement given Saudi's nervousness, of course, over supply hikes. Now joining us now is David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David, fantastic to have you on the show. This jobs number at the top end of expectations. And I know your forecasts for the rest of the year actually are more optimistic than the Federal Reserve's. Your view on what we saw today in your forecasts. Well, that's right. This was a, a blockbuster report. It was, uh, you know, you can add in to those uh, 916,000 payroll jobs, you can add in an upward revision of 156,000 the prior two months. So we're now about 1.1 million jobs higher than we were a month ago, according to the report. Uh, and remember, this is before the the stimulus plan hit. I mean, this is, this is reflects the economy as it was in the week of March 12th. Uh, and you've still got all this fiscal stimulus coming. You've got the effects of vaccination on allowing for reopening. So I think this is the first of quite a few very strong employment reports uh, this is turning out to be, or will turn out to be, I think, a very fast economic recovery. For all the forecasting, to your point, we're in a degree of wait and see mode because we've got the stimulus checks coming. We've got far broader stimulus for small businesses, for example. We don't know how much of this money is actually going to be spent and therefore what the impact's going to be on things like growth and inflation. So we just have to sort of give it some time. Well, I think there are things we can analyze about this. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting about this particular stimulus plan is it's very aimed at lower and middle income households. Mm. And, you know, sometimes the government, you know, has a big tax cut, but a lot of richer households get it and they save the money. But what we know from, from consumer surveys is that when you give it to lower and middle income households, they will spend it. Now, some of it is just catching up on bills, of course, but that still gives them the, the wherewithal to spend more money. And I think the combination of people finally having some money in their pockets and the ability to get out and do some things that they haven't been able to do for a year. And we're not quite there yet. I mean, we still have to get past the rest of the pandemic. But I do think that the pace of vaccination is very strong. So by the summer, uh, the economy will be a good deal stronger than it is even in this uh, March report. What does this mean for Federal Reserve policy? In your own forecast, you're also saying that we could see inflation topping the Fed's approximate target, we discussed this on the show yesterday, uh, of 2% in April and remain above that for the rest of the year. Obviously, the Federal Reserve has loosened the way that they look at inflation. We had Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed yesterday saying we would welcome it above 2%. But what do you think it ultimately means for policy, David? Well, ultimately, I think that the Federal Reserve has to uh, turn tough at some stage. They don't mm. want to do it right now. They want to try and keep long-term interest rates low to encourage a full economic recovery. Uh, that's what's called sort of forward guidance. So they say, oh, we'll be very easy forever. 
But I think that by the fourth quarter of this year, you're going to see some very strong economic numbers, and you're going to have to see some change of, of tune from the Federal Reserve. I think they do need to think about, if not raising short-term interest rates, they at least need to think about you know, not buying government bonds at the pace they've been buying them at. And I think you'll see a tapering of that early next year. Bottom line is, I do think long-term interest rates, mortgage rates are going to go up over the course of this year as this economy recovers and as the Fed begins to get a little bit more hawkish. When they start to communicate that perhaps the recovery is so strong that they need to adjust policy or tinker with policy to some degree, will investors be confident enough in the pace of the recovery to accept that and not be fearful of it? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, you can, you can, you can raise interest rates in, a, in an economy with a lot of momentum. And this is an economy with sort of unique potential for momentum here. You've got uh, the sort of unique ad advantage of this this COVID recovery, where a lot of things that can, can just automatically reopen uh, when community spread dies down and we have uh, uh, a sufficient percentage of the population vaccinated. And you've got a, a very sh uh, short and sharp stimulus uh, package here, which also will help the economy. So I think raising rates in this kind of environment probably won't harm the economy, won't slow it down in any significant way. Um, and it is important to try to get monetary policy back to balance because, you know, low rates, yes, they're not causing general inflation, but they are causing asset price bubbles. And you can see that all over capital markets, there's a lot of distortions caused by very low interest rates. So you really don't want to keep very low interest rates in a healthy economy. Yeah, we've got a record number of companies issuing positive guidance for, for earnings season as well. And yet we're talking about a situation perhaps where we see higher wage pressures, higher interest rate costs. We've not even mentioned a whopping great infrastructure spending bill that might be coming. The tax rises too. Are investors and analysts, as they look towards corporate earnings, too optimistic, whether it's this year or perhaps for the predictions that they're making for next year? And how does, should that play into investors' portfolios today? Well, our analysis of the way analysts actually look at this is they're usually not too optimistic about the current year, and they are usually too optimistic about the year ahead. <laughs> so Funny I think, that. I think they're, they're seriously, I mean, they, they, they tend to be pessimists, and then they're smoking something when it comes to, you know, two years out. Um, so we think that it will be a great year for profits. We think profits could be up 40% in terms of operating earnings per share this year. But I think 2022 will be a much harder climb because as you, the economy will go into next year with a, a head of steam, but it's going to slow down as the year goes on. And you will have those stronger wages. You will have those higher interest rates. So I think earnings will grow more slowly next year. I don't think, I don't think analysts have got it too wrong overall. But of course, stocks are priced very high relative to that earnings expectation. What should investors avoid, to your point, about frothiness out there? Things they really don't understand in terms of valuation. I mean, if you, if you, it's, it's not difficult to sit down with the spreadsheet, look at the price of a stock, look at what the company is earning, thinking about what, what might it earn next year, the year after, the year after that, and ask yourself, is there any way this company will ever get back to a normal valuation? If the answer is no, then you should be careful about it. So we're seeing a, a real dispersion in valuations. There are some things where people are buying them at, at prices which just don't make any sense based on any long-term economic forecast. So I think you know, this is a, last year was a year of momentum. This is a year really to think about valuations and make sure that the business that you're buying, that the security you're buying, really does make sense when you put it down in a spreadsheet. Oh, finally, fundamentals matter. <laughs> I think <laughs> we'll so. <see. laughs> yeah. David, great to have you on. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. All right, up next on First Move, new symbols of shame in China. How some Western brands are struggling after being caught up in tensions over Xinjiang. That's next. And of course, we'll be back with more.
Welcome back to First Move. China reportedly hosting a group of foreign diplomats on a visit to Xinjiang, where the government is accused of carrying out human rights abuses. The diplomats are from countries friendly to Beijing, including Russia, Pakistan and Iran, according to the state-owned Global Times. This comes as some big Western brands face a Chinese backlash over their comments regarding the Xinjiang region. Selena Wang joins us live with all the details. Selena, anyone looking at this will expect little criticism, if any, from these nations. But I think the backdrop is we've got to remember this is a lucrative market for Western brands. The problem is they're finding it increasingly difficult to navigate the tense geopolitical backdrop that they face at this moment. Julia, that's exactly right. And for years foreign companies have been forced to make seriously difficult compromises in China for success. The understanding is that you have to play by China's rules if you want to access that critical lucrative market. And that could mean anything from following restrictive regulations to saying a few good words about China. But as China and the U.S. and its allies are fighting over human rights issues, that relation is becoming increasingly challenging and risky. In this scenario, you have foreign brands expressing concern over forced labor in Xinjiang, where the U.S. State Department estimates that as many as 2 million people have been detained. But trying to address those allegations has landed these brands in hot water. So the question is, is it even possible for brands in China to simultaneously satisfy the Chinese consumer as well as other global consumers? It is unclear. Here goes the H and here goes the M. Across China, H&M logos and billboards are getting kicked off advertising frames, scratched off the wall and even covered in red cloth amid a sudden consumer boycott. The logo is now a symbol of shame in China. Its products have also disappeared from Chinese e-commerce platforms. CNN search for H&M on Alibaba and JD's apps yield no results. The Swedish company is just the latest target of Chinese patriotic fury whipped up by the government. It all started after a group linked to the Communist Party reposted a six-month-old statement from H&M, saying it was deeply concerned over reports of forced labor in cotton production in China's far western region of Xinjiang. The company in September said it would stop sourcing cotton from the region where the U.S. has accused Beijing of committing genocide against Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. These are allegations Beijing has strongly denied. The Communist Youth League criticized H&M for spreading rumors to boycott Xinjiang cotton while also trying to make profit in China. Posts on China's Twitter-like platform Weibo with the hashtag I support Xinjiang cotton have been viewed more than 7 billion times. Within hours, the fury spread to Nike, Adidas, Burberry, Puma, Converse, and others, as social media users and state media dug up their old corporate statements expressing concerns about forced labor reports in Xinjiang. Dozens of Chinese celebrities publicly announced they would cut ties or end promotional partnerships with these foreign brands. They rushed to defend Beijing's policies in Xinjiang even several of China's top Uyghur stars. The outrage spread to the streets of Beijing. We should boycott them and let them know that China is not a country to be trifled with. I'll resist any brand that has any bad comments about our motherland. Xinjiang produces one-fifth of the world's cotton and nearly 90% of China's cotton annually. In January, the U.S. banned imports of cotton imports from the region over forced labor concerns. 
Beijing's campaign against foreign retail brands came just days after the U.S., EU, and U.K. sanctioned several Chinese officials over their alleged role in the crackdown in Xinjiang. Beijing has leveraged the country's massive consumer base for political means in the past. What is the ultimate aim here? I think China's feeling really threatened by all of these sanctions, and has decided just to hit back、uh, as strongly as they can to try to get these companies to influence their governments to kind of tone down and back off. But analysts project the drop in sales will be temporary for the targeted brands, with H and M likely suffering the most. Other brands like Nike and Adidas, who sponsor Chinese sports teams, are still available on Chinese e-commerce. Here in Japan, retail store Muji said that it will continue to source cotton from Xinjiang and that it's conducted due diligence on its supply chain. In fact, it's even advertising products made with Xinjiang cotton on its website. But experts say it is impossible to conduct accurate due diligence on supply chains in Xinjiang, and that the only way to ensure that a brand is not complicit in forced labor is to cut ties. But not all consumers have the same concerns. It doesn't affect my shopping. I trust Muji's products and quality. My house is filled with their products. She tells me. So as long as、uh, they continue to to hold、uh, this current policy. I might、uh, think twice to shop in the stores. As tensions between China and countries around the world intensify, brands will increasingly be forced to pick a side. Experts say that these kinds of campaigns against foreign brands could actually increase as China increasingly tries to use its economic power to push back against global pressure, especially as we near the Communist Party's 100th anniversary as well as the Beijing Olympics. What China is showing with this pushback is that it doesn't care as much about international criticism as it did before, and that China believes it is stronger and it doesn't need to cave to international pressure. Julia. Yeah, going its own way. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that and that report. All right, coming up after the break, grab that popcorn and get ready for a curtain raiser at Cineworld. The CEO on your big screen after the break. Roaring back to life after being silenced by the pandemic. From today, Godzilla versus Kong is on the screens of selected regal cinemas in the United States. It comes as Regal's parent Cineworld agrees a deal with CNN's parent Warner Media to release movies in theaters ahead of streaming on demand. Cineworld employs around 30,000 people. It has over 9,000 screens and around 780 locations around the world. Mookie Gredinger is the CEO of Cineworld Group, and he joins us now. Mookie, fantastic to have you on the show. I said roaring back to life there. This is a huge moment. What kind of recovery are you anticipating? I think it will take a, a bit of a time, but we see the reaction from our customers is amazing. You know, people are keep on going on the website, calling,、uh, trying to find more details. We will have all our cinemas open in the U.S. by the beginning of May, and we are even accelerating now because of the demand at the opening. I guess Godzilla vs Kong will have a great weekend this weekend. This is what we hear already from preliminary. Uh, uh, results and we are really very very excited. It, 
as you mentioned, will be a slow start. But particularly in the United States, we are seeing vaccines being delivered incredibly quickly. What kind of recovery, if we judge by the end of this year, do you think you can have in terms of percentage of people returning and coming back to the cinemas relative to the numbers you had? Let's use 2019 as the benchmark. Yeah, I would say when I say slow opening, I mean that we are not opening all the cinemas on one day. But I think that what, what we see from the reaction within a month, maybe six weeks, we will see already very uh, uh, good results. If you look overseas and look at China and Japan, cinemas are breaking records there. And uh, uh, so it really took less than expected. I know a lot of people were talking about the future of the cinema industry. People want to go and see movies in the cinemas. So we are really confident that uh, in the summer already we will be up and running almost full scale. When are we going to reach 2019 numbers? It's to say, but it's going to be there sooner rather than later. You just mentioned uh, what we saw in China and J Japan, and clearly we've seen huge enthusiasm in China. Do you think they're comparable in that the message is that actually people do love going to the cinema? They may have the option to stream at home and watch movies at home, but they love to go to the cinema, and actually they'll continue to do that going forward. I think that the people that like cinema, without insulting anyone, the people that like the most cinemas in the world are Americans. And in the U.S. is still the strongest market and the tradition of going to the cinema is so strong. And we see how much people miss the cinemas and they will be coming back. And with the huge success now of the vaccination, it is safe to go to the cinema. We are still keeping our safety uh, protocol intact and we are taking care of every uh, uh, visitor in the cinema. And I'm sure uh, that we will see great numbers coming from the biggest uh, market, which is still the US. There's a critical relationship between the movie studios and the cinemas. You need the movie studios to create great movies. They need you to present them to some degree. But the balance has shifted throughout the pandemic, at least. I mentioned in the introduction that you'd signed a multi-year deal with Warner Media to have this 45-day window to exclusively present the movies in the cinema and then they'll be available on streaming. Could that adjust or does that 45-day window hold continuously? I guess that 45 days is a good number. And uh, whether it is 42 or 48, it doesn't matter so much. I agree with you that the balance was disrupted and it is very difficult to keep a balance when all your cinemas are closed because we were delivering zero dollars. But right now, when we're coming back, I think there is no argument. And all the studios, one like this and one in the other way, agrees that platforming the movies as a locomotive for the circle of life of a movie, the best way is get some theatrical exclusivity and get, then go to the other markets. And I'm sure that we will see a shorter window maybe that we saw we had before, but we are going to see a significant window that will protect the cinemas on one hand and will really allow the customers to see first the cinemas on the big screen in the way they like it. And uh, uh, after that, they will have all the other opportunities to see them. I mean, 45 days would have been unimaginable 
as a short space of time, two to three years ago. Do you think that could become the industry standard? Clearly, Disney, another big player, Universal, that you have to negotiate with here too. Or do you think 45 is the max? It could actually shrink. Look, it depends uh, a lot where it is going, you know, because if it's going to streaming is one thing. If it goes to premium VOD, where people need to pay 20 or $30 in order to see the movie at home, it's a different thing altogether. So there are many opportunities, many adjustments. There are a lot of uh, uh, negotiations to be done around it. But I think that one thing will not uh, uh, be changed. I think that the interest of a window and the interest in a theatrical exclusivity is not only ours, it's also the interest of the studios, and they will do more money, and they know this, that they will do more money. Currently, in the pandemic, everybody is trying. There are all kinds of experiments, there are all kinds of movements that are being done. I guess that the 45-day uh, uh, is a good number, whether it will be a bit shorter or a bit longer, it depends also a lot on the movie. There are many movies that are holding for 10 weeks or even more. And there are many movies that are really producing some income in the cinemas for two weeks, and then they uh, 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 are already done. So it, it's every movie is specific, but the interest is combined. And the studios and the cinemas have the same interest uh, in the way to maximize at least the income from the theatrical window. And yes. I would add another thing, you know, it's watching a movie at home, you can watch a movie at home on many, many things. You can watch it on your TV, you can watch it on your iPad, you can watch it on your phone. The, going to see a movie in the cinema is not only just going out, it's also a kind of a social event. There is nothing to compare the experience when you see a movie surrounded by 200, 300, maybe more people around you, all are laughing, all are crying, all are happy, all are frightened, than to see the movie at home. So the, this huge difference and the fact that people want to go out, and especially after the pandemic, makes me sure that we are going on the right way and the cinema business will be back on its feet in a big way. I'm sold. Bring us back to life, quite frankly. Mookie, great to have you on. Thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. The CEO of Cineworld there. Thank you. After the break, a CNN exclusive. We'll show you how a vaccine is made. I'll look at the new BioNTech fax facility and the scale of it might surprise you. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Most of Europe in some form of lockdown for the Easter holiday for the second year in a row. Two big factors, the European Union's poor performance in getting people vaccinated and a surge of new infections. Meanwhile, vaccine makers are trying to ramp up production. Frederick Pleitgen is in Berlin and he's just visited a new plant making the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Fascinating to have you there, Fred. What did you discover? Hi, Julia. Well, it's absolutely key to Pfizer and BioNTech's strategy to try and get more vaccines made than they had originally planned. We were inside that factory, and it was quite interesting because they were telling us that originally they thought they were going to be able to do, produce about 750 million doses in that factory in the span of the year. Now they're already saying that they could make up to a billion doses in the span of a year because they've optimized all of their processes. Here's what we saw. This is the heart of BioNTech's production, a bioreactor that produces mRNA, 
the building block for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So we started in Marburg with manufacturing of the drug substance. This is a biochemical process that happens basically in every cell, but here we have shipped it to a bioreactor. And this takes roughly one day, one to two days. Valeska Schilling is the head of production at BioNTech's new plant in Marburg, Germany. It was just certified by the European Medicines Agency and she tells me the staff are already ramping up production. We all have friends, we have family, we have you know, a lot of people that are affected by this pandemic situation and we all want to come out. So we are very happy that we can actively do something against the situation we live in. The bioreactor is operated in a special clean room. It might not look huge, but can produce enough mRNA for about 8 million doses every two days, BioNTech says. The company hopes to produce a billion doses within a year at this plant alone, vaccine that's badly needed. Right now, there's massive demand for vaccines against the novel coronavirus, much more than there is supply around the world. That's why it's so important for plants like this one to not only get up and running, but to get up and running at full speed as fast as possible. While countries like the U.S., the U.K. and Israel are vaccinating their populations quickly, the EU and much of the rest of the world are suffering from severe vaccine shortages. That's despite the fact that so far BioNTech and Pfizer have exceeded the amount of vaccine they promised to deliver. The company's co-founder telling CNN they are constantly trying to increase production. This is new technology. Um, you cannot just repurpose uh, vaccine facilities which are there and uh, you can also not train people uh, um, uh, very fast. Uh, so we are working and turning every stone basically uh, to upscale and roll out our capacities. And the company hopes to further pick up the pace with sites like this getting into full swing. And it's so important, of course, not just Pfizer and BioNTech trying to up their production, but of course other vaccine makers as well. And I think it's something that you're really seeing across the board with vaccine makers across Europe and across the world. They're really looking for ways and how they can make their production more efficient, but also, for instance, try and get in other companies to produce their vaccine for them as well, subcontractors, to make sure as many as people as possible get vaccinated as fast as possible. As, of course, especially here in Europe, Julia, we have that big, big problem of a massive vaccine shortage, Julia. Yeah, it needs to be a global effort. That's the bottom line. Fred, great job. Thank you. Fred Plaitgen there. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Have a great Easter weekend if you're celebrating it. Connect the World is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.